Retropod is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, history lovers. I'm Mike Rosenwald with Retropod, a show about the past rediscovered. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Last night, President Trump delivered the annual State of the Union address to Congress. Following along, of course, were the millions upon millions of TV viewers, tweeters, Snapchatters, and YouTubers. The State of the Union is obviously a big deal. For political junkies and the politicians who camp out all day hoping to snag a handshake with the president as he walks in, it is a spectacle on par with the Super Bowl. There's cheering, an occasional boo, and even post-game, I mean post-speech, analysis. But like much of life before the advent of TV, which helped usher in a political landscape defined and controlled by images, the State of the Union wasn't always this way. It was, actually, a rather simple process. The president gave a short speech to Congress, or many times, just sent a letter. The tradition itself dates back to the earliest days of the presidency, beginning, as it should, with George Washington. It was January 8, 1790. Washington arrived by carriage at Federal Hall in New York, which served as the new nation's temporary capital. The Constitution said he had to do this, to provide the House and Senate with, as it says, information on the State of the Union and to recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. But the Constitution said nothing about how that information was to be delivered. Washington decided to do it in person. Hours before he arrived, the Senate chamber, where he would make his address, was a scene of chaos as lawmakers scrambled to rearrange furniture to get the room ready for his speech. When the time came, Washington delivered an 1,100-word address. There were no lines designed to generate big cheers, no references to honored guests. Washington permitted himself the occasional rhetorical flourish. Knowledge, he said, is in every country the surest basis of public happiness. But for the most part, Washington confined himself to a fairly dry to-do list for a nation still in its infancy. A political commentator today might refer to the speech as a real dud. Washington urged uniformity in currency, weights and measures, and asked that Congress provide money to support the conduct of foreign relations. He congratulated the House on its endorsement of an adequate provision for the support of the public credit, which was a long-winded way of talking about the country's debts. Not surprisingly, Washington, a lifelong military man, devoted a considerable portion of his speech to national defense. To be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace, he said. 
the speech also foreshadowed another issue that continues to dominate American politics, immigration, though he spoke with more of a mouthful than politicians do these days. Various considerations, he said, also render it expedient that the terms on which foreigners may be admitted to the rights of citizens should be speedily ascertained by a uniform rule of naturalization. Washington delivered seven more State of the Union addresses, but it didn't become a tradition. John Adams, who succeeded Washington, delivered four during his term in office, but his successor, Thomas Jefferson, ended the practice in 1801 and submitted a written report to Congress instead. The symbolism of the speech troubled the genteel man from Monticello, who feared monarchical aggrandizement. In the years that followed, presidents continued Jefferson's example and delivered their constitutionally required reports in writing. More than a century later, in 1913, President Woodrow Wilson revived the address to Congress for precisely the reasons Jefferson found objectionable. Wilson's address was an attention-grabbing move. It created a bully pulpit for the presidency and laid the foundation for the spectacle we know today. I'm Mike Rosenwald. Thanks for listening. This episode was adapted from a story written by Robert Mitchell for The Washington Post. For more forgotten stories from history, visit WashingtonPost.com slash Retropod. <laughs>